you've got your Bibles with you, you can open them to Mark uh, chapter 6. We're going to be verses 31 through 56. Uh, if you need a Bible, we've got some up here uh, to my right and your left, or if you've got them on your phones, as long as you promise not to be making changes to your fantasy lineup, uh, you can check your Bible on your phone. But we're going to be in Mark 6, verses 31 through 56 tonight. One TV show that I really enjoyed watching when it first came out, and I don't even know if it's still on or not, but it was the TV show Undercover Boss. Anybody familiar with the show Undercover Boss? The premise or what happened was the CEO of a large company uh, would go undercover and he would go to different branches or different franchises around the country in the particular area where they had their most business. And he would show up as a new, he or she would show up as a new hire in need of training and they would work with people in different areas of the company. And what they would try to glean or understand is what are we doing well as a company? And then what are we struggling with or what are some blind spots that we as high level management are unaware of? And after it was all said and done in the last 15 minutes or so of the show, they would bring the employees to the, either the company headquarters or somewhere really nice and they'd bring them into a room and the boss would be sitting there, the CEO, owner of the company would be sitting there and they would realize that the person that they had either like really dragged through the mud about their inability to do the work that they were asking them to do or that they had kind of been brutally honest with was actually the CEO and owner of the company. And so they would roll out these plans that they had, from what they had learned, the CEO would talk about all the plans that management had made to make the place better. And then for those who they trained with, they would inevitably do really nice things for them, which always left me crying at the end of the show. I was like, let's like there are now like four shows that get me every time. This is one of them. They hit the golden buzzer on America's Got Talent. I'm a puddle of tears. Um, used to be when they would scream, move that bus on Extreme Makeover uh, Home Edition. And then anytime you watch uh, the last episode of The Office, you cry a little bit. So there are those. But. Imagine how differently it would look if at the end of Undercover Boss, when they brought these employees in and they set them down and they said, this is the CEO owner of the company. Now, imagine how uncomfortable this would get if the employee looked that owner, that CEO directly in the face and said, you're not him. And then everything that the owner or CEO tried to tell them they were going to do, the employee just shot down because they didn't believe that the person actually sitting in front of them is who they were told they were. And so they don't believe that they have the power to make the changes or to affect the change that they're promising. It feels like an empty promise if the people who are employed by the CEO and owner don't believe the CEO and owner is who they say they are and has the power to affect the change that they say they can affect. And today we are going to see something similar to that alternate scenario described above take place with Jesus and his disciples. In back-to-back -back miracles, Jesus is going to reveal himself in his full divinity to his disciples. And the question we have to wrestle with, both for the, and with the disciples and for ourselves, is this. Will they see Jesus for who he is and have their faith strengthened? Or will they doubt and prove that they still have work to do in a faithful understanding of who Jesus is? And the same is true for us today. Will we see Jesus for who he really is? Will we take him at his word for all that he has done and said he's going to do and already done and promised to do in the future? And will it cause our faith to be strengthened? Or will we maybe realize that we have some areas that we need to take before God in prayer, asking him to strengthen our faith in Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your 
word. We are thankful for your word that we have that has arrived here in the year 2019, and it is intact and pure and exactly the way that you desired for it to be for us. It is inerrant. And so, Father, we give you thanks for the grace and the marvel of your word in our lives. And Father, the word isn't there just to serve as a pick-me-up on our down days. The word is there to help us fully see and understand your character and your nature and your saving work in Christ. It's meant to cause those of us at different points in our life to be strengthened in our faith, to have our weak and wavering faith sustained through dark and stormy times. It's there to provide for us a sure foundation that we would grow deep into the gospel and the roots of our heart would be established in the goodness and the truth of who Christ is and what he has done. And so when we see Jesus do miracles, we're not left so much to ask the question of how the miracle happened, but we are left to ask ourselves, who is this Jesus who performed it? Will we see our Jesus, our Savior, with clear eyes of faith tonight? In Christ's name, amen. All right, stick with me. We've got another lengthy section of Scripture to read, but I'm not going to offer to pray again at the end of it this time, like I did last week where I read for so long, I was like, maybe we should just pray again. So, Mark 6, 31 through 56. Here we go. This is what Mark writes. And he, Jesus, said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and, they, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. 
and as many as touched it were made well. Amen. Jesus had sent the disciples out at the end of John, at the first of John 6. And then the, we get this interlude of the story of Herod and his beheading. And now the disciples have come back to Jesus. And they've been out doing ministry. They've been teaching and they've been healing and they've been casting out demons. And so Jesus knows full well the toll this can take on the body and the soul and the spirit of the disciples. So when they rejoin Jesus, the first words from Jesus to them are, come away to a desolate place and rest for a while. But before they can even begin to make their way towards the boat, they are surrounded once again by throngs of people pushing and jostling and vying for Jesus' attention and touch, so much so that the disciples and Jesus are once again unable to feed themselves. So the disciples realize Jesus isn't crazy, and they take him up on his offer. And they board the boat and head to a place, a desolate place, where they could find rest, reflection, and rejuvenation. And this should tell you something about the starving nature of the people in the time of Jesus. Both for God to act, for God to speak, for God to do work in and among them. They get in the boat, and usually if you're going between two places and there's the land route and the, the boat route, usually the boat route is quicker because you don't have to kind of cut in and around. They get in that boat, and the people are so determined to stay in contact with Jesus, they, so, they are so desperate for Jesus to perform miracles for them that Mark tells us that they ran ahead of them. They got, on, they got their own foot quicker than Jesus and the disciples could get to the desolate place on boat. These people were desperate for Jesus to do something for them. Now you've got to ask yourself, why didn't Jesus change course? Because apparently they weren't so far away from shore that the people, the crowds, couldn't see where the boat was headed. Which means that Jesus and the disciples would have had to have seen the stampede of people going that way. Like the cartoons where it's people running and there's like a massive trail of dust behind them. It wasn't hard to pick out that this massive crowd of people will look like they were going to the exact place you planned on going. So why Jesus not say, hey guys, um, turn that boat around. Let's, go, let's just double back on them and let's go hop back out and we'll all stay at our house tonight and not worry about what. Jesus could have done that, but why doesn't he? The reason Jesus doesn't do this is because he has one goal in mind, and it is to show himself primarily to the disciples as the Son of God in human flesh. And so when Jesus steps off the boat, Mark tells us Jesus saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on, him because, on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. What was meant to be a time of refreshing with Jesus and one another turns into another all-day ministry marathon. And if you've ever been in or involved with ministry at any level, you know how this goes. You've got a day planned for rest and relaxation, and it takes one phone call. And every plan that you had for rest and relaxation turns into an all-day ministry marathon where your time is upended because you have to give yourself in service to the kingdom. And that's what the disciples see happen here. And over the course of all this teaching and all this work that Jesus is doing, the darkness begins to creep in on the desolate area where Jesus has been teaching the disciples. And the disciples come to him with a reasonable request. They say, hey, Jesus, this is a desolate 
place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. If this were 2019, they would say, just go to the nearest Dollar General because you can't be in a place so desolate that there's not a Dollar General to go uh, get yourself some food. But they say, hey, send them out into the surrounding villages to get something to eat. With so many people needing to be fed, the disciples are actually being reasonable. They're trying to curb a problem before it becomes a full-blown crisis. And what is Jesus' response to the disciples? And there are times when I love how Jesus interacts with people, especially the disciples. Because he is, he, you've got to imagine that maybe, just maybe, there was like a slight smirk on his face. And he's, he's like, hey, uh, you give them something to eat. Now again, did Jesus need to ask them to go get stuff? No. He's Jesus. If he wants to make the food for 5,000 appear, he can make it appear out of thin air if he so chose. Jesus prompts them to go get the food as the beginnings of revealing himself to the disciples as the Son of God. And part of the reason he asked the disciples to go get it is because what we're going to see through this and Jesus walking on the water is that Jesus isn't primarily concerned with the crowd's reaction to him and the crowd's understanding of him. As Jesus moves closer and closer to the cross, he wants to make sure that the disciples understand who he is. And so Jesus sends the disciples out after they inform him that if they are to buy food, it's going to take two-thirds of a yearly salary. So they come back and they tell Jesus, we have found five loaves and two fish. It's a good start to maybe feed Jesus and the 12 a very sparing lunch. But how in the world are you going to feed the 5,000? And Jesus has the disciples seat the people on the green grass in groups of hundreds and fifties. Then Jesus looks to heaven and says what is more than likely a variation of the table blessing of the day in Jerusalem. And this is what the Jews of the day would have prayed around their table. Praise be to you, O Lord, our God, King of the world, who makes bread to come forth from the earth and who provides for all that you have created. Now, we don't know if that's what Jesus prayed, but we would assume that there's some variation of that common table prayer that was said by faithful Jews around their dinner table. And then Jesus begins to break the bread and give it to the disciples to give to the people. And then Jesus himself breaks the fish and distributes it among the people. And everyone is fed, not only until they are full, but until they are satisfied. And there are 12 basketfuls left over for the disciples to be able to get something to eat as well. All told, 5,000 men plus women and children were fed by five loaves and two fish. We offer you a word of caution when you read stories like this in the Bible. Don't go overboard trying to interpret what the numbers mean. Like five loaves and two fish means five loaves and two fish. Now you can read certain people who would say, well, the five loaves stands for the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and the two fish are the two peoples, the Jews and the Gentiles, that are going to become one. Or they'll say it's the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. At the end of the day, what we know from how Scripture is written and how Scripture interprets itself is that five loaves means five loaves, and two fish means two fish, and you don't need to read anything more into it, and also with the 12 basketfuls left over. 
The 12 basketfuls left over is not these heaping huge wicker baskets like the size of this table I'm preaching on. It would have been a small basket that Jews carried in that day to keep personal belongings and a packed lunch with them. It wasn't this massive overflowing amount of food, but if there are 12 basketfuls and there are 12 disciples, then if you gather enough in those baskets, then you know that the disciples are taken care of. But sometimes if you're not careful, you can read, you can study, you can want to read everything, you want to backload these numbers with a ton of significance. And if you do that, if you go too far down that rabbit hole, you're going to miss the whole point of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Now this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, is the only one that's in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all record the feeding of the 5,000, which is our first clue that it is a miracle that meant something to the early church. Because there are bits and pieces, there are miracles and stories and teachings that are here in one gospel, but not there in another. And there are things that we see in Jesus' life from one perspective in John that we don't get from Luke. But they all tell us the story of the 5,000 being fed. And why is that? Because this passage, more than any other, is meant to point before the cross to the divinity of Jesus. Jesus, Jesus feed, not Jebus, Jesus feeding the 5,000 is Jesus doing the work that only God can do. And it is work that God has done historically in the life of Israel. Remember, it was in a desolate place, the wilderness, that God fed the Israelites after their exodus from Egypt. And what did God feed the Israelites with? He fed them with manna, the bread of heaven, according to Exodus 16. In the exodus, they were together only enough manna for the day. But Jesus, who is leading a far better exodus, gives them a super abundance of food. They didn't eat until their hunger was curbed. They didn't eat until they first felt full. Scripture says they ate until they were satisfied, until they had that kind of good feeling you have. Not when you get up and you're like, when I get home, I'm going to eat a bowl of cereal or some ice cream because I didn't eat quite enough. Nor do they have that feeling when they get up like, I ate way too much and I would just feel way better if I could throw some of this up. They leave with a contented heart, with a contented stomach because Jesus has met their needs and there was enough left over for the disciples to be able to eat and be satisfied as well. And when we see Jesus doing all of this, Jesus is fulfilling two roles according to the NIV study Bible. And we're going to put up here the scripture references. I'm not going to read all of them. But the first role that Jesus fulfills is that of a Davidic shepherd meant to lead the people of God. Mark tells us when he steps off the boat that they were a sheep without a shepherd. And so Jesus steps in and fills this role of the Davidic shepherd to lead the people of God. You can see that in Jeremiah 3.15, Jeremiah 23, 4-6, Ezekiel 34, 23, and Ezekiel 37, 24. Jesus also fulfills the role of the shepherd who fed God's people. You see this in Isaiah 40, 11, and Isaiah 49, 9. You see it in Psalm 23, 1, Psalm 28, 9, Psalm 80, verse 1, Psalm 95, verse 7. And if you really want to catch the full magnitude of what Jesus is doing in feeding the 5,000, go back at some point this week and read Ezekiel 34. It's one of like the six, chap this was like one of the six chapters in the whole book of Ezekiel that you can read and make sense of without like four commentaries and a whole lot of coffee. But in Ezekiel 34, Ezekiel prophesies about this coming 
shepherd, this coming Davidic shepherd who would be God leading his people, and he would feed his people on the green grass and in the good pasture. And so a lot of how we understand this, if you want to take some time to understand it maybe a little better, is to go back and read Ezekiel 34. And not only that, but according to the NIV Study Bible, again, this was the miracle meant to point to Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. This is what the study notes in the NIV NIV Study Bible say. Based on Israel's experience in the first exodus, several Jewish traditions expected a repetition of the wilderness provision, some even in association with the Messiah, in their end-time deliverance. Of all Jesus' public mighty deeds, this has the most obvious messianic overtones. But for the first time, there is no mention of amazement, suggesting that neither the people nor, more important, the disciples truly perceived what took place. Up until this point, every time Jesus has taught or every time Jesus has performed a miracle, there's been astonishment. There has been amazement. There has been an awe that settled over the people as they wonder, who is this man who teaches and does the things that it would seem only God can do? But he feeds 5,000 plus women and children, and there's no mention of astonishment. There's no mention of amazement. Jesus is becoming just another figure who can help meet their physical needs, and they seem to be none too interested in understanding the fullness of who Jesus is. Everyone missed it. But most importantly, the disciples who'd just been commissioned and sent by Jesus' own mission missed it, proving once again that proximity to Jesus doesn't guarantee a right understanding of and belief in Jesus. You would think by now, if you were reading Mark and Matthew and Luke all together and you'd seen everything that had taken place, because Mark's a little shorter, abbreviated version of the Gospels, you would think by now they would get it. But they still miss it. But Jesus doesn't all of a sudden have regrets about sending them out on mission. He doesn't all of a sudden go, well, I need to start over. And I hope that you would find some comfort in that tonight, whether you've been walking with Jesus for six minutes or six years or 6,000 years or 60 years, however long you walk with Jesus, there's still going to be parts of him, even in eternity, that we will be understanding and knowing better. And so if you have those moments, even in your life now, where you feel like you're really close to Jesus and you're struggling to fully understand him, know that he is not frustrated with you. Know that he has great patience and grace for you as you work and you ask him to help you better understand who he is as a disciple who wants to live and make much of Jesus in your life. And so the disciples miss it. The crowd misses it. But Jesus remains faithful and true to the mission that he is on. And so once everyone has been fed and the leftovers gathered, Jesus immediately sends his disciples away so that he can dismiss the crowd. And once the crowd is dismissed, Jesus himself withdraws for a time of prayer and solitude. From his vantage point on the land, Jesus can see the disciples struggling against the wind to make their way to Bethsaida where he had sent them. Somewhere between 3 in the morning and 6 in the morning, which would have been the fourth watch of the night, Jesus heads out from the shore with the intention of passing by the disciples. 
Now, when it says that Jesus meant to pass by the disciples, it doesn't mean that he is planning to hike up his outer garment and then just sprint across the water past them, leaving them to their own devices. Like, hey, what, what, what was that? Like, it's not like the, uh, the really fast kid on Incredibles who just fly. You're like, there's just a trail and you're like, oh, there went somebody or something. Jesus' intent is not to pass them by to get to Bethsaida ahead of them. When Jesus, when Mark mentions that Jesus is going to pass them by, it's meant to call to mind when God passed by Moses in Exodus 33. It's meant to be a display of Jesus' divinity. However, the disciples are still dull and hard-hearted, and they don't recognize him. They actually think he's a ghost. The miracle of Jesus walking on the water so shatters their understanding of what is possible that the end result is a cry of fear rather than a cry of faith. Jesus sees them struggling. He begins to take a leisurely stroll across the top of the water because he's Jesus and it's his prerogative to walk on water if he so chooses. And he's meaning to pass them by. He's meaning for them to see him, to understand him, to have a moment where their hearts and their minds pause and they go, who could walk on water but God alone? But they scream in fear. They cry out in terror. And Jesus, after hearing their screams of fear, immediately responds with, take heart, it is I do not be afraid. Jesus' greeting in this second boat scene around a storm or a struggle with the wind is meant to serve as an answer to the question of the disciples after he stilled the storm in Mark 4.41 when he stands up and rebukes the wave in the boat. The disciples say, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And when Jesus says, It is I, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid, he is answering their question so jesus climbs into the boat the wind ceases without him even have to even having to say a word and the disciples are left astonished because they still haven't seen the truth of who jesus is at this point you understand that jesus is trying to make it painfully clear who he is because when he announces his identities to the his identity to the to the disciples using the it take heart it is I do not be afraid he is using what Ben Witherington points out as a formula for divine self-revelation and this is found in Psalm 115:9 and Psalm 118:5 and Isaiah 41 verses 4 and 13, and Isaiah 43, 1, and Isaiah 44, 2, and Isaiah 51, 9, where over and over God would say, do not fear, for I am the Lord who is with you. Do not fear, I am God. Do not fear, I am. I am is the way that they understood who God was because of how he had revealed himself to Moses. And so when Jesus says, take heart, it is I, he is saying, I am am take heart i am could it be any more clear to the disciples what jesus is trying to convey to them i don't think so but i also know that if i were sitting in that boat and someone came walking across the top of the water i'm probably not going to be like hey jesus so good to see you son of god in the flesh 
I'm probably screaming like a, I hate being scared. I would probably not just scream. I'd probably either jump out of the boat or like get under something to hide from whatever was coming my way. But all of this, when put together from the feeding of the 5,000 to the walking on the water to pass by the disciples, is meant to help us see what the disciples couldn't, that Jesus is the Son of God. James Edwards, in his commentary, summarizes the scene of the walking on the water when he says, In walking on the water toward the disciples, Jesus walks where only God can walk. And when Jesus says, it is I, he not only walks in God's stead, but he also takes his name. Jesus feeds the 5,000. He does the work that only God has done in the history of Israel when he fed the Israelites coming out of Egypt with the bread of heaven, manna coming down to them. Jesus has now replicated that in the breaking of the bread. And there was only one who calmed the waters of chaos at creation. There was one written about in Job chapter 9 who would tread on the waves of the sea. It is God alone. Jesus is working his hardest to show the disciples he is God in the flesh. He is the long-awaited Messiah. Leroy Hazinga notes, and I think this is important for us to hear and then understand. Scripture always operates on both literal and spiritual levels. And so here, we hear not only the literal level of Jesus announcing he's not a phantasm or a ghost, but the Jesus they know, but also on the spiritual level that Jesus is God, the Jesus they don't yet know. And so here's how we understand the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the water. First and foremost, on the literal level and the spiritual level, They are displays of Jesus' divinity meant to give the disciples an ever-firming faith in Jesus and the work that he's been called to. Once you know and understand that, then you can step back from it and you can go, but it is also meant to call to mind for the disciples later on and for us now that Jesus is more than capable of meeting our physical needs. We don't take all of the practical application out of the feeding of the 5,000. But we just don't make the practical application the first point of the feeding of the 5,000. This wasn't a lesson in sharing where some have tried to debunk the miracle of Jesus feeding 5,000 by saying he got one person to share and then everybody started to share and then it was just a good moral lesson on everyone sharing all things in common. That's not the point of the feeding. The point of the feeding of the 5,000 is that this is something that only God can do. But we take comfort in the fact that God is still actively working to meet all of our physical needs today. And on the literal and spiritual level, when we hear of Jesus walking on the water, it again is a clear display of Jesus in his full divinity doing the things that only God can do to help firm up our faith in him and his work. But there is also the promise that is there, but it's not the primary point. But the secondary point is this. Jesus is with us in the storms of our life. 
And when Jesus shows up in a moment where we have been struggling on our own to make sense of what is happening, Jesus can show up and in a moment, without even speaking a word to the waves, but just in addressing us with the same simple phrase of take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. He can calm us in an instant, regardless of what is happening around us. And so we have to read it both ways, but we have to be careful which one we put forward as the primary emphasis of the passage. The primary point in Mark writing this is not that the disciples saw Jesus walking close to the shore or that he was somehow on a sandbar all the way out into the middle of a very deep sea of Galilee. The point is that Jesus was doing what only Jesus can do. Because in order for us to come to Jesus in faith that he would both meet our physical needs and be with us in the storms of life, the prerequisite for coming to him with those needs is trusting and believing that he is the Son of God. If he's not the Son of God, don't come to him expecting him to be able to meet both your physical and your spiritual and emotional needs because he will not be able to do that. But if he is the Son of God who controls all things and is the sovereign ruler over all things, then yes, we can come to him trusting that he loves us and he wants to meet us where we are. So the disciples and Jesus arrive at Gennesaret and immediately the word of Jesus' arrival spreads like wildfire. In droves, the people come with those who are bedridden with sickness and disease so that they can be healed. But notice the change in the crowd's plans for healing. No longer do they think it necessary to see Jesus or be brought before him. They simply lay people in the most likely path that Jesus will walk so that they can reach out and touch the edge of his garment and be healed. And the crazy thing is, it works. Mark says, and as many as touched it were made well. The people of Gennesaret display faith in Jesus. They don't have faith in faith. They display as mixed up as it may be, as kind of off kilter as it may be. They at least have a faith in Jesus to be able to heal their best friends and their family members. And so they bring them from everywhere. They kind of create this path that Jesus is going to walk on with all these people. And all they're trying to do as Jesus passes by is reach out and get a touch of his garment. But much like the disciples and the other crowds, these people in Gennesaret only have an interest in Jesus for what he can do for them. They have no interest in who Jesus really is. Adolf Schlatter rightly summarizes the issue with the crowds at Gennesaret and with this whole scene when he says, In the zeal with which the people brought their sick to Jesus, We recognize not only how deeply the untiring goodness of Jesus touched Israel, but also how distant Israel remained from Jesus, because it sought from him nothing but the healing of its sick. You can't deny, we can't read this and deny how much the goodness of Jesus was affecting and changing people's lives. But they were also missing something if they thought that the best thing Jesus had to offer them was just the healing of the sick. 
it still showed a fundamental misunderstanding and failure to grasp who Jesus was and what he had come to do. So at a certain point, they're no different than the disciples. They have a faith in Jesus. But that faith seems to stop short of full belief in him and desiring him for who he is. Their faith seems to be only in what Jesus could do for them, not in the fact that Jesus sought to give them himself. So as we draw our time to a close today, we are left to wrestle with the same dilemma as the crowds and the disciples. Why do we go to Jesus? When and why do we seek him out? Is it only for what he can do for us in the here and now? Have we spent so much time around the things of Jesus and aware of the person of Jesus that we've become numb to him being divine? Do we pursue Jesus in our everyday life because he is the aim and the goal of our life? Or do we really only pursue Jesus when we're hoping Jesus will do something for us? Another way to ask this question is, does your prayer life in the middle of a crisis match your prayer life in the middle of the calm? I'm not saying that we don't pray more frequently and with more fervency when we're in a crisis. But are we seeking Jesus with the same desire and with the same diligence when everything in life is going well as we are when we're desperately crying out and seeking him when it seems like everything in our world has been turned upside down? James Edwards puts all this into stark relief when he says this, The compassion of Jesus has fed, satisfied, and healed the crowds. But the blessings of his compassion raise the ultimate question, whether those who experience them will enter further into Jesus' saving purpose. The physical blessings of Jesus are not an end in themselves, but a fork in the road. One branch which leads to Jesus' final saving purpose. The other to a false understanding of Jesus as simply a wonder worker. That James Edwards summary is why I believe we're never told the why or the how. Why we're never told the how of any of the miracles in the Bible. Because I don't think us understanding the how of the miracles is the point. The point of every miracle in the Bible, especially in the Gospels, is to see Jesus for who he fully is and to come to him in faith. There is no secret formula for how to procure a miracle from God, but there is a promise that when we come to him, he will be with us. He will heal us of our deepest sickness, the sin that's in each of us, and he will meet all of our needs and he will give us the greatest gift of all himself john 17 3 says jesus praying says and this is eternal life that they know you the only true god and jesus christ whom you have sent do we know jesus today 
Is our desire to know Jesus better because he is the best thing we could know? Or are we simply gaming Jesus, trying to remain close enough to him so that when life goes bad or when we need a miracle, we feel like we've put him in our debt? Jesus says, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Will we labor to know Jesus and treasure Jesus for who he is above all else? Let's pray.